0: Hello, and welcome to the Raising Family Podcast, brought to you by thefamilyproclamation.org. I'm David Steele. I'm Linda Hill. And I'm Brent Anderson. In this podcast, we'll explore both ancient and modern scripture, as well as quotes from living prophets. We'll also discuss peer-reviewed
1: scientific research that complements and confirms the clear, repeated, united teachings of the prophets. Thank you for subscribing and joining us as we share stories that we hope will help bring the family of proclamation to the world into your world.
0: Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Raising Family Podcast. My name is Linda Hill, and I am your host today. I am really excited to begin our conversation with our distinguished guest, Dr. Janet Jacob Erickson. She is an associate professor in religious education at Brigham Young University, where she teaches the Eternal Family course, as well as the Introduction to Family Process course for the School of Family Life. She received her PhD in Family Social Science from the University of Minnesota after completing a bachelor's degree in nursing and a master's degree in linguistics at BYU. And she's a research fellow of both the Wheatley Institution and the Institute for Family Studies, and she has been a columnist in on family issues for the Deseret News since 2013. She is an incredibly accomplished woman and has done some fascinating studies that we're going to get into. Thank you so much for being with us today, Janet.
1: Thank you, Linda. It's wonderful to be on. Thank you for your love for family and for truths about our relational nature, I think. Um I studied, my background is in nursing and linguistics. That's my bachelor's and master's degree. And it was interesting in the middle of my time teaching English to speakers of other languages. And we would teach people from all over the world in one class. Someone called me and said, would you like to go to a conference in Geneva, Switzerland? Um, My grandmother's helping as a philanthropist for this effort. And I was like, of course I would never turn down the opportunity to go to James West Right, (laughs) Right. And, and if we go back some, you know, in your audience are probably remembering that there was what we called the world Congress of families and it's still going on, but the world Congress of families at that time with Richard Wilkins from BYU, from the law school, he'd gone to United Nations conference, not having done anything in family in particular. And just in that experience was made aware of, wow, the international lens on the family, especially led by, by leaders of war of nations in the Western world, especially have really shifted in their understanding of the role of the family. And so he came home with a very strong feeling and impetus to do something to help shore up or help alter this direction in terms of how the family was seen in the international world and policies that were being advocated, um, on, uh, developing countries from developed countries. And so when he started it, the church became very supportive and involved. He was at the law school and there were a couple of conferences. This was the second conference. It was held in Geneva at the United Nations buildings. And I went and I was amazed. I had no family science background. Um, I had done nursing and I'd done linguistics. I'd studied in nursing. You know, of course, the family plays a very central role in health and well-being. And I knew that when I studied linguistics, teaching English to ESL students, it became really clear that when a child shows up in kindergarten, then their kind of linguistic capacity is very shaped, has already been very shaped by their family background, such that we could even count the number of books in a household and predict kind of linguistic preparation for learning another language or for facilitating their own development in their own language. And so in both of those areas, family was really fundamental. I mean, it was just at the core. And then when I went to this conference, I I just sat in session after session and I was amazed. I was amazed to hear about the role of the family in economies, the role of the family in children's development the role of marriage, the role of religion and family. And, and so I came home just sort of, I didn't have a degree in it. I started sharing what i learned. People were very interested, but I, who knew I was an ESL teacher. And at the end of my tenure teaching for BYU ESL, which involved travel and living abroad, um, my dad said, I think you should get a PhD in family science. And I was like, no, I don't want to get a PhD. <laughs> I like, I like what I learned about family, but I don't want to get a PhD, but I knew at the end of that summer I should pursue a degree in that. And the doors really opened and I got some really foundational training at BYU before getting a PhD at the university of Minnesota. And, and it just set me on a path of really in my dissertation work. I looked at work and family, uh, women in the work and family setting. I did a lot of study of daycare and attachment and all of that, how children's younger development is shaped by the work family context. That was my focus. But then when I started writing for the desert news, it just took me into every possible area. And so I feel like coming to teach the proclamation has been really, uh, it pulls together the proclamation sort of in nine paragraphs is so remarkable. I remember the first time I'm in graduate school and I'm like, that document is remarkable because I'm studying all of this research, which really is just human experience captured, right? Hopefully without bias. We know that's very difficult, but, but a capturing of the human experience. And I'm looking at it and I see these statements that encapsulate hundreds, if not thousands of research studies, in one statement in the proclamation that marriage matters, that it impacts families, that, that the power of procreation is sacred and has implications that fathers offer something distinct from mothers. And, and, and it was just amazing. And in, in the range of areas that I had studied, including work and family early development, mothers and fathers, um, I could see, wow, there's just, there's just an encapsulation of profound truth from human experience
0: in this document? Oh, incredibly. I mean, I I do think anyone that really makes a serious study of the family proclamation can come to that conclusion. It's not just this document. I mean, it's, it is, it really does encapsulate truth from the human experience. I think for eons of time before studies were done, before all these scientific things, you know, were set out there and and documented, we have prophets <laughs> and we have a Heavenly Father that has definitely laid things out for us. And, and you know, and speaking of that, we usually do in, in each of our podcasts, we like to associate it with one of the paragraphs in particular. And, you know, paragraph seven probably is one of the meatiest... <laughs> Of all of them. It's the largest paragraph. In it. And um, and I love to focus particularly, I know a lot of your research has really centered on the roles of mothers and fathers and the necessity of that complementary relationship. And um, I I'd read a paper you sent and listened to some of your um presentations, which by the way, just for our Just for our listeners, we do have a number of quotes and clips from presentations that are on the familyproclamation.org that are in support of each of these because that, for those that are listening for the first time, the familyproclamation.org does fully annotate each one of those paragraphs down to each sentence and just tremendous support for each one of those truths that are laid out there. But I know in, in paragraph seven, it says... Um, We're just going to start in the middle. You know, happiness in family life is most likely to be achieved when founded upon the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. Successful marriages and families are established and maintained on principles of faith, prayer, repentance, forgiveness, respect, love, compassion, work, and wholesome recreational activities. And I really love to focus on this. By divine design, fathers are to preside over families in love and righteousness and are responsible to provide the necessities of life and protection for their families. Mothers are primarily responsible for the nurture of their children. In these sacred responsibilities, fathers and mothers are obligated to help one another as equal partners. So I know that you have done mountains of research. <laughs> on that in particular. And increasingly, we're living in this world that's saying that, well, not only is gender fluid, but gender doesn't really matter. What are your thoughts on this? What is research? What are, tell, Start telling us about some of the research that you've done on this area. Yeah,
1: so happy to do that. Um, as we start, it's interesting, um, Linda, that Students, I think when they first describe how they feel about the proclamations, first, first day of class, we kind of broached this issue of like, what are your feelings and sensitivities? How, why could this be a sensitive document? They are very fearful that it is black and white, that it locks people into certain roles or behaviors. And I appreciate their perspective. I, I think that what happens across the semester is all of a sudden it's like, oh my goodness, this isn't. document that locks people in to certain things. It's a document that actually is more expansive because it helps us understand why uh, the natural endowments, for example, of gender don't mean one cannot provide or one cannot participate as an equal in all the dimensions of family life, but that we have been given gifts and capacities that facilitate our being a particularly um, able influencer in very meaningful ways. So let me just give an example. And I just start out by saying, this is our, our understanding of the unique psychological and physiological endowments that come with male and femaleness are way beyond who's working and earning money and who's right. It's way beyond kind of an hours division or an equal kind of time in certain spheres it's, it's both deeper and broader than that. And I'll just give some examples to start out with. Um, we know when an infant's born, the infant has to accomplish one task absolutely essential for their development. And that is to bond with another human being on whom they can rely for care and that they'll be fed, clothed, all of that. But something far beyond that is they have to have a bond in which there's emotional communication that is what researchers at in Berkeley will call the language of love, interestingly enough. And it allows for the developmental processes of the right brain in that infant to develop and grow, and then the left brain. And they come out primed to look for a particular caregiver. This is across all species. And they it's, this is a being whose heart they have felt, whose body has built their own, whose blood has flowed through them, who's been the source of their development entirely. And it's a mother. And that mother, they are primed to look at a woman's face. There's more space in their brain, actually for a woman's facial features. We know that an infant will spend more time looking at the face of their mother. Just they'll gaze for a seconds longer at her than other faces, primed to connect and now because of technology we can see we used to think it was the left brain that was that was being developed in that process of interacting with with this attachment figure but now we know it's the right brain and it's the center of identity and meaning and well-being and essentially what's happening is she eye to eye body to body skin to skin is taking those in that interaction, the parts that the baby is born with in that brain are now being connected. One million synapses a second, we can estimate. And she literally is building the brain of that infant by 18 months old. And you know, these are rough, rough metrics. It varies by child, but just roughly the infant shifts to needing father and connection with father and In that process, different parts of the brain are built and and different connections are being made in that interaction with the father. And both end up being very important to the bonding dynamic that's essential for development. And yet they're sort of sequential and they contribute in unique ways to the building of that infant. And that just continues across development. So you have oxytocin floods, both a mother and a father. Floods her, especially in the process of bearing life, of breastfeeding, and all of that. And oxytocin is the bonding hormone that we know facilitates focused in connection with others. And so, that mother what's interesting is oxytocin tends to elicit in her certain kinds of behaviors, cooing and cuddling. So, she engages in what we call mother ease. She talks in a unique way to the baby. She uses different sounds, all of which we now no, are particularly adapted to the developmental needs of that infant. And father also experiences oxytocin, especially in the process of being with the mother and the baby. And yet it elicits, it tends to elicit different behaviors in him. And so it's why you'll hear that phrase, cooing and cuddling, tickling and tossing. And so dads tend to be the one who's doing more stimulatory kinds of physical kinds of actions with that baby, even as the mother's holding close. And it's fascinating because it sort of represents how they're impacting development in unique ways. I use the word word unique cautiously because there is so much overlap and we know fathers can bond with infants, can care for infants, can do wonderful caregiving. But they bring to that relationship different predispositions, biologically, physiologically, that tend to orient them in specific ways. So fathers are more likely to hold a baby as a football than a mother is. Mother tends to wrap the baby up, keep the baby close to her, and father tends to hold like a football. And it's interesting because he's giving that baby a view of the outside world that he himself has. And across development, what we notice just roughly, mothers are, tend to build core identity, emotional understanding. Fathers are, Im, are impacting relational understanding, relational capacity, how you relate to the outside world. So you'll hear, for example, that incarceration is more likely for those who did not grow up with a father, fatherlessness tied to increased incarceration rates and Roughly, it's as if fathers are helping children develop a sense of boundary in terms of what's appropriate, what's not appropriate, how to engage with the outside world in ways that are healthy. Fathers tend, for example, to discipline much less frequently than mothers do. Intervene, I should say. They intervene to correct children less frequently than mothers. Mothers will intervene more often and give more instruction and that kind of thing. But dads do it when they do it, dads hold the line where mothers tend to be flexible about consequences. It's more of an engagement around it. And fathers tend to set a boundary that says, do not cross this. Fathers also tend to, they just tend to have a role that that says as children get older in particular, this is how you operate in the outside world. This is what you do. They play with children differently. If you walk into a room and you see someone roughhousing with a child, 90% of the time, it's going to be a father playing with that child. Ross Park was trying to figure out what her dad's doing. Why are they so inclined to this kind of physical play that begins like an infancy, that bouncing up and down. And then and wrestling and tussling and holding them up and throwing them into you know just all of those things. And what he's giving the mom a heart attack sometimes. Yeah, she's like, <laughs> put them down, right? My <laughs> husband don't throw them so high. <laughs> it, it is so funny because when my husband grew up with no baby, like he's an only child, no cousins around him. Our daughter at 35 years old was the first diaper he changed, and so like this was not. He saw nothing. He immediately starts to hold her as a foot with like a football. Then that first night, I remember we we, we come home from the hospital and he starts doing calisthenics with her. And I'm like, what are you doing? This is our like six pound baby, right? And and so a student just said the other day, she said, my husband and I have been talking about when to start a family. And he keeps saying, I just can't wait to throw that baby. And she's like, what are you saying? (laughs) What are you talking about? and, And yet this, it's just really remarkable to think that we have these these tendencies towards certain ways of relating to that child that are very important. And so Ross Park finds out when dads play with children, what it, what it helps them do is self-regulate emotions. They learn not to bite, not to kick, not to hit as they're engaging kind of in elevated physical and emotional play. And so those children tended to be more popular or have more high peer ratings in school as children get older, it's dad who tends to be the one that calls him a name, like playfully engages in ways that he's unaware, but has this sense for, I need to help them know how to navigate peer dynamics with a sense of awareness and confidence. And so there you get dads really matter for achievement father is the most important predictor of college graduation. So having a father involved in your life. You know, like
0: 98% or something I read, right? For college really, graduation. Yes. It's I, a was, a really I thought that that a typo, but it really is extremely high. Really high. And so what we have, right, is
1: lower, our lower educated classes, that lower SES, middle and lower America, we'll call it, are much less likely to grow up with a father because In those populations, marriage is much less likely. Out of wedlock childbearing is very high in the 70 percentile range. And so you have children who don't grow up with dads, which just has this spiraling effect in terms of coming up out of poverty, achievement. All of those things are made much more difficult by the fact that they're not exposed, not born into a healthy marriage, and they don't have a father that's close to them to facilitate that kind of development.
0: So, well, and it's perpetual, unfortunately. Like I I do remember that from family science, the generational transmissions and how yes. hard it is to get out of these cycles that start yes and just perpetuate and perpetuate. Yeah, they're and, very powerful, wow. right? Yes, extremely. More so than anyone really wants to admit. I mean, we don't want that to be the reality.
1: Right. And to that point, Linda, I One of the things that I think can be painful in the church and the proclamation can be painful is we we all have this sense that there's like an ideal. We all yearned to have loving, caring, happy homes with loving parents, a mother and a father who were deeply devoted to us and one another. And then you have real life and we are immature human beings and we are struggling to be in relationship. And so I'll tell them right off, no one, as Elder Gong said last conference, has a perfect family. No one. We are all just developing, growing human beings. Some of you will have fathers that never played with you that way. Some of you will have mothers that you didn't have a strong attachment relationship to. Many of you will have marriages. Your parents' marriage was healthy and it, and it was ruptured at some point. And, and so we want to, right? It's natural to be like, I don't want to be any different. I don't want to be a statistic. I don't want to be marked as somehow being less than other people because of these challenges that I had. And there's just a very leveling of the playing field. All of us, all of us came from imperfect dynamics because we're imperfect human beings, but it helps us and they can get this sense to know what the implications are from some of these losses that are inherent to mortality. So that we know how we can respond, heal, and help with them. And we want to kind of deny them, but right. but it's far healthier to confront that reality, which is a reality for all of us, and understand it, why, why it has impacted us, and then move forward with, with healing. And they're, these students are remarkable in their intentionality about how they want to go forward and do things like they had growing up and differently. And I'll tell them, yep. And you your children will have gaps because of how you are. They'll have oh, gaps, right? Because you can't be. And that's why when it says success is founded on Jesus Christ, it's just at the very core of the proclamation is we have a redeemer and mm-hmm. he will redeem us in our relationships. And he will
0: change us into beings who can be in beautiful, healthy relationships with others eternally. He's, He's the one that can right that ship, you know, and I just, and I do feel like I remember learning some of these statistics and saying to a friend one time, oh, did you know that if one person in a relationship you know as i'm learning family science one person relationship comes from a divorced family you have a 65% higher chance of getting divorced and someone says well what good is that information what why what well, how helpful is that it just makes someone feel bad and i thought well but i've seen friends who've been in divorce situations and their children i had a friend confide that their their son recently married was going to counseling almost like it was a secret and i said that is fantastic yeah that is fantastic you know he's recognizing you know, there was some dysfunction in my family and I want to go into this marriage and fix, I don't want to do the same things that my dad did. I don't want, I want to be a better husband and better father. And, and like, I think that is an example of that whole, like embracing it and saying, okay, yeah, this is a statistic, but I don't have to be that statistic. If I look to Jesus Christ, if I look to the family proclamation and have a pattern of how to right that ship, you know, change it, change the direction so that we don't have another generational transmission going on. My husband, he
1: experienced the divorce of his parents when he was six. And every time I teach about the effects of divorce, I'll say, Mike, this is painful to talk about because so many of us and men in many cases, these were courageous people who left difficult marriages in the church. They would not, they would not have divorced if there had been any other way, Right.
0: Absolutely. And
1: so I have so much admiration for the courage that it takes right to act in that way, to right wrongs. And then he will always say yes. And it's still important to talk about the effects because it helps us understand ourselves, right? Children who have experienced that. It helps me understand myself and then know how I can be different in my relationships. And then the truth is we all need that. We all need, right? Right healing right. no one is yes. redeemed by their parents marriage by the quality of their parents marriage. no <laughs> one is redeemed by like their super solid family relationships 100 percent, we all depend on a redeemer for our salvation and and these family relationships matter in family life because they teach us so much about how to love how to be whole how to have intimacy how to be in relationships that are beautiful and joyful so it's a great mortal experience filled with pain and right it is It's, it's, it's,
0: we get all of it, but I, I love, I I really love how you brought that back to the savior because he's the center of all of it. I want to pivot just a minute to speaking of children, you're talking about the consequences when your husband's saying we need to talk about the effects. You know, I, in the last few years, I've heard way too much in, in the form that maybe it's a potential cop out Oh, children are resilient. They're fine children are fine we don't have to worry about shutting down the schools this covid stuff all these other things that they've been through i mean a lot of them have been through some a pretty traumatic few years and i have looked at it from the beginning saying no this is not you know we are forgetting children we're forgetting children and i mean we hear that are how how resilient are children because i know you've done a lot of studies on that too
1: yeah, right yeah it's such a good question um it's interesting in the childcare research that has become incredibly political, but it's very interesting because what will happen when the NICHD study came out with their finding that early and extensive hours in daycare, what this means is not any daycare, but it means entering daycare within the first nine months of age for extensive hours, 25 to 30 hours per week is associated. Now at first, what happened is they saw negative effects for these 900 children at two years old, some negative effects. They seemed to disappear at age three. And everyone was like, oh, look, it doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter. The number of hours a child is away from their parents doesn't matter. And they kept doing the study. It's going to end up going into adulthood for these 900 children. At age four and a half, all of a sudden the findings come out and the risk is dramatically increased based on early and extensive hours in non-maternal care. Now, it was very difficult for the NICHD to publish those studies. Because the fear is always, well, this means we're telling mothers they're bad, they can't work, that they're responsible for their children's well-being, right? And and it became very kind of polit- it's a very political kind of thing, as opposed to really looking at, okay, we have to think about how our adult decisions have to be guided by what the well-being is of children what other co- what other framing is there right it's it's because of what children need that we do all the things that we do that we right and when we flip it and say they're resilient which is the other thing that will come out right it'll they'll come out with a study that says look don't worry the kids are resilient right and as we know from the daycare research what happens often is there's we take that data and we want to shift it in a way that makes it look like there's no implications. And, and it's just not reality. Now this does not mean, okay, with divorce, with it does not mean your children are destined to failure and right. Or my husband who was, who was placed in daycare at age six weeks old, right. Divorced parents at six. He had all those things in his life. And it's really interesting because I can look at his first grade findings He was just telling our kids about this. And I see exactly what I saw in the research, which is children who are in early extensive daycare are at risk for social, emotional challenges. He has them at age six. And then you look at the effects of divorce and a child, we have to know, even if that is the best decision for that mother or that father to make, to leave that marriage, that child embodies their parents' union. They physically are, their reality is the union of those parents. And so as Mike would say, as a young adult, he has this question, if my parents were not meant to be, was I meant to be? And we see like a loved one that I just have, dear loved one, parents announce the divorce. He goes and writes in his journal. He draws a heart. It has a rupture down the middle of it. He writes on one side, mom, and he writes dad. And we know the heart that he's drawn is his own heart. And then he writes questions at the bottom. Where do I go? What does this mean? Who am I? And so what we see in the research is these very existential questions about meaning and identity, because you embody that relationship between your parents. So even if it is absolutely the right thing for that divorce to happen, the reality is there's been a rupture inside your core that needs to be addressed. When we look at children in non-maternal care, we know there's a risk of them being in an environment that has a, a, a high child to adult ratio because there's chaos, more chaos, and that child is not going to receive kind of the attention that a normal family structure would receive. And there are implications social and emotionally. Now, does that mean they're destined to be disruptive? No, all their lives. No, they can heal, but it does not deny what healthy development looks like, what ideal family structure kind of looks like. And so I think, I think you're right. Children are resilient in the sense that they can heal, right? How does that feel to tell a child who feels the rupture of their parents' marriage or experiences the, the challenge of not having strong attachment relationships and to tell them you're resilient, you're going to be okay. Now they are resilient And at the same time, we do not want to deny the realities of their experience. It's wrong to do that. And so I think the approach should be, what do we do to best facilitate the development of children? And not what is the least amount we can do and still have them
0: sort of develop and grow and be okay. Right. It's just, I I do feel like I've seen in the last generation or so that there's just been such a shift from a child-centered yeah, world. You know, I mean, I remember we were much when I was growing up. We were much more strict about even movie ratings and who got to see what. And you know, there seemed to be more rites of passage for children. And these days, it's just sort of this free for all. And I, I get concerned about the fact that we're viewing children as just many adults, and they're not. They're not just short adults. Their <laughs> their they, their brains aren't quite yes, uh, quite there. And I feel like it largely as a society, we're sort of neglecting that that part about the brain development and about the fact that they are different than adults.
1: Yes. They depend on us. They, right. you'll be fascinated by, I, I always teach students this fascinating study, Carl Zimmerman who helped found Harvard sociology program, who came to be known as kind of the most um, significant sociologist of that time period. And his magnum opus was to review the rise and fall of civilizations and the place of the family. So Babylon, Greece, Rome, the European empires, this whole like process of rising and falling. And what he looks at is what is the place of the family in this process of rising and then ultimately degenerating and some other empire comes in and takes over because you are too weak. So we see that of course, over and over again. And what he finds is so fascinating he'll say at the peak of their development and progress, the peak of creativity and innovation, it is a period when the society is oriented toward the development of children within families. So it's a, it's a culture that's oriented around children, having them and providing for their development. So I'll say to students, why would that be? What about an orientation to children makes adults, more innovative, creative, facilitates this, this kind of best state of that society. And as you know, they're thinking about the future. They're improving the world because it's people with children that care about libraries and green spaces and parks and all of those things, all of which make the whole environment better for everyone. And, and why are parents doing it? Why are they caring about the libraries and the communities and going and voting and right. Ensuring that things are, because they're worried about their children. They care deeply about their children and making the world a better place for their children and for their children's children and for right the, the future. Right. And when we lose that, what, as Sorokin says, we have lost we have lost the future. We've lost an orientation toward the future. So we live at a time when we have a higher rate of deaths of despair from suicide and it just has increased over time, right? And there seems to be this loss of a sense of hope in the future, in what will be. And, And how is that reflected in our orientation toward children? In our having children, facilitating their development, nurturing children, what is it what does it mean
0: about our disconnection from the meaning of life itself? Right. And I think it's powerful. It is. I wish this is a message that we could just get everybody to understand. <laughs> you know, so I, I guess that's one of my questions is how, you know, knowing this and like for the people that are listening to these, you know, these these truths and the studies and the scientific evidence and kind of knowing where we are in society, what are some things, you know, what are some things we could do? What are policies that 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 are, you know, important for families to be able to thrive, because I'm sure a lot of this work is done. Hopefully, like you, I know you've worked with policymakers and things like that, and, and as you go to these large conferences. I, I would think that the whole point of them is to think of policies and things that would be practical applications and things to promote family, to promote the well being, to promote marriage. Yeah. What are what are things that the average person can do?
1: Yeah. Well, it's really interesting, Linda. I, students, I think, they have no idea when they embark with this knowledge, all the different places that it will be used. They're going to be writing a letter to their local library. They're going to be on the PTA. They're going to be, even if they don't have children, they're going to be oriented towards the developing of the de- development of their nieces and nephews. They're going to be living out these truths. And it feels like at the core is an appreciation for the fact that we are relational, deeply relational beings, and that these core relationships... Are very significant in our lives. So I'm just thinking about policies. Cause you asked about like, what does the ordinary person do? And then we have the policy world. So Utah just opened up the governor. It was really important to him to create the office of family right at cabinet level position, which we've never had. And I don't think any state, but Utah has. And essentially what it is, is to put a lens of family on every policy, so if we just started kind of from the range of policies, you've got marriage, you you recognize marriage really matters. So what are things that you can do publicly to encourage that success sequence, which is people going to school, getting married, having children, that this is thriving in life. And so, right, all you do kind of public service announcements, what you do in terms of policies to remove impediments to marriage from from our marriage penalties that are across so many of our efforts to help with lower income families. There are marriage penalties all over the place, whether it's blocking income for daycare um, help, whether it's blocking income for getting help with, with subs, you know, with subsidizing that income. So removing marriage penalties from all of our policies, but it goes even in so far as like, what does this mean for paid leave efforts? And of course, that has economic implications that you have to think through. Does that does it harm feelings in the harm families in the end because we've impeded economic growth for companies that would facilitate families? Or is it worth really encouraging paid leave efforts so that we can facilitate developing strong relationships in that early period and communicate that those relationships matter by our policies? But then you get into Utah's working on what does this mean for how we approach adolescence, mental health, and social media use
0: because parents
1: have no idea what to do. And you've got schools passing out devices, right? Seeing themselves as very innovative and progressive. And yet we have significant, unbelievable increase in mental health challenges among adolescents and young adults that seems at least in part, if not extensively linked to technology. So here's the governor saying, we have to talk about this So that means efforts for public service announcements about that, educating families about that, putting in policies in place that require parental administration of all of those social media apps, right? Like requiring that in the state. So I think it's a multifaceted effort. And at the core, this whole issue of technology and youth is really relational. We have a massive increase in loneliness and feelings of disconnection and the mental health challenges that come from that, fragmented family relationships, And then you've got technology impeding actual connection with other human beings and we need it. We have to have it. So it's, I think at the core of all of those policies is an appreciation for the importance of core relationships in person, interactive relationships. And I'm one of those mothers who needs to do better, right? Like turning off devices. So I am totally present knowing that this is the essence of life. It's why that Harvard grant study, after 75 years, tracking the same people for 75 years, George Vallant ends the study, principal investigator. The earlier principal investigator had died. It's Harvard's class of 1936. He comes out and says the end of the end finding of this entire study over 75 years is that happiness is love, full stop. Relationships are everything warm relationships in childhood, warm relationships in adolescence, warm relationships across adult development. And, and so we just have to really deeply believe that, that it's not about individual achievement, individual happiness, that our individual happiness hinges on the strength of our relationships. And we've had it, you know, we've just had it on the inverse. Mm -hmm. It's been like, right. Achievement on your own, independence, succeed. Yeah. You do you. You do you, be unfettered yeah. by relationship, uh, right? What it asks of you to be in relationship. And we're killing ourselves. That's yes. like quite literally, we're killing ourselves. And so there's just gotta be a flip that individual health and well-being is fully and completely dependent on the strength of relationships, the core relationships being most important.
0: And oh, that, love lens that
1: has got to be on everything we do, our schools, our homes, our churches, our right, our policies.
0: How do we strengthen core relationships? I really appreciate those thoughts. Um, you know, turning to more mothers. Yeah. I'm going to ask you a question about mothers. I was recently studying the, the October 2019 talk by president Nelson in the women's session. It was, um, it was a powerful talk called spiritual treasures. You remember that one? Yeah. And I just, in there, he said, let me be very clear about this. If the world loses the moral rectitude of its women, the world will never recover. And I don't, I don't think that president Nelson is one for hyperbole <laughs> and here he's saying we will never recover. And I'm just, I'm curious what your thoughts are as, you know, as, as it, he was speaking to the women yeah. in our church. And I'm just curious kind of what your opinion is on that, because I've, you know, I'm just wondering, yeah, what are, what are your thoughts on that comment? Because that was a, that one struck to the heart. right? Like, what do you think some of the dangers are that we're dealing with as women in the church right here and now?
1: Yeah. Really, really powerful. I, there've been several key talks, the Hayfen, Elder, Elder, Elder and Sister Hayfen, um, Elder Christopherson talking about the moral suasion of women. It's fascinating because Elder Haven will say she is, and Sister Holland, actually, she is the mortar that holds the bricks of civilization together. She is, she is literally that mortar. And I think what we know about women is women at our core, starting with Eve, who partakes of the fruit because of the relational realities. Adam, what about the children? And Adam is sort of inclined towards this vertical orientation. I've got to do my duty, which I think is indicative of men's gifts. And she is very relationally oriented. Well, we have been sickened as a society without that strong orientation from women of our relational reality. And so I think what happened with radical feminism and feminism has brought great things, right? But radical feminism, which was a rejection of the family because the family was seen as the source of women's oppression, what would have been better, right, is what we see reflected in that feminism in Britain, the second wave, Mary Poppins era, um, where the mantra was votes for women, chastity for men. It's a very powerful combination. Right. What we see happen in the 1960s is votes for women, right? Which had been an earlier, but the mantra is liberation for women, sexual liberation, right? Women should be free to engage in relationships without any repercussions sexually, because that's what men have been doing for years. And so widespread contraception, abortion, all made that possible, presumably, and And it's just indicative of losing that relational truth that women have been gifted with, that the strength of relationships matter, that sexuality was never meant to be outside of relational strength. It was never just a sport to engage in. And and that's true about women's sense about children, right? Our natural orientation toward children. So what you see in the world when we look at women's preferences, when women have young children... Their preference is, does not tend to be full-time employment. Now, some do, but by and large, those that data has remained the same across decades. Women care about being able to provide the kind of care and be with children the number of hours they desire to be. And many are working far more than they want to be at earlier ages right and so listening deeply to women's preferences now does that women mean that women do not want to be involved in communities that they want to be conscripted as we were in the 1950s right in inappropriate ways around roles no women have deep desires to be engaged in communities and and contributing and we need women's voices we need women's voices about the importance of relationships right so mm-hmm. so i think there's just When we lose, I think when he says, when we lose women with their deep sense of moral power that is centered in relational strength, we lose the mortar that holds society together. And I think that requires addressing sometimes inequalities in marriages. I think sometimes women in the church, my students can grow up maybe like I, a little bit thinking, I'm just going to have a man earn a life for me. I'm going to be dependent upon him and he's going to make my life wonderful. And I'll just kind of go under the radar a little bit Mm -hmm. and he'll provide security and money and pleasure for me. And then they're in that marriage for a little while and they're resentful because it's not what they thought it would be. And, (laughs) and so I think women really owning our strength as, as individuals with tremendous capacity who choose to enter relationships with men as equals, and also have a sense for how powerful our influence is in the nurturing of life. And we are Fully irreplaceable, but to choose it, aware of what we're choosing, to act as agents in choosing to engage in this world from a place of choice, as opposed to just sort of I'm just going to be dependent on this person who's going to earn a life for me, and and so we we just we've got to have a, a clear view, and that's why I think when I, I teach my, you have to know how powerful you are as a mother. There is no privilege greater in this life than it being that kind of influence on the life of another soul. And that does not mean you are not engaged in the world. We need you in the world. And we need you to appreciate how powerful you are in your relational capacity and connections. And to choose them, to choose to choose that with clarity, to choose to sacrifice some things that you might want because of the impact you can have on life even as you recognize there will be other seasons in my life to engage very fully in the more fully time-wise in the world in ways that my voice is needed. Now I've just, like done a whole bunch of things there, but I think women have powerful capacity in terms of
0: relationships. Oh, I've always felt women have incredible power. Yes. But we just, I, maybe that's just, it, it's not falling for the trap that. Power only comes from being like a man, because that's kind of where feminism derailed, in my opinion. I mean, I do feel like we're on like the fifth wave or something now, and the fifth wave isn't even about actual women anymore. I mean, but I always thought, you know, I I I get these ideas, and so a lot of people who are thinking, oh, I want, I'm I'm a feminist, and it's like, well, what kind of a feminist? Because there's some different, there's there's a huge gamut there, and and I still feel that, yeah, our greatest powers do come from that, you know, kind of that maternal feminism, and and. The, the influence we have on children, I so appreciate the your conviction and just the way in which just listening to you is extremely power empowering as as a mother. Um, so I think you're telling us we need to own it.
1: Yeah I love reference it. that it's so powerful when Jean L. Shane, this wonderful feminist, she calls herself a revisionist feminist at Chicago. She'll say what happened was it was behold the new woman as the old man. Oh
0: yeah. Right. No, thanks.
1: No, thanks. And it's (laughs) right. It's like, that is not, that is not who we are. That is not what the world needs. Right. And, and, Mm -hmm. and you described it, right. We are women with unique and powerful capacities that the world needs. One of those strong gifts is a relational understanding of the importance of core relationships and the -hmm. world needs us, right? Needs that voice, needs that capacity.
0: I really appreciate that. I think you've shed a lot of light on kind of, I think some of those issues in the family proclamation that some people do kind of go, ah, I don't know about that, you know, because I, I think that's a sticking point for some people. They don't, read into the depth of it, you know, about the, the, in the, in that paragraph seven. And it's unfortunate because I do feel like you said, there's so much overlap and there's so much overlap in, in the gender roles and in the things that we do as men and women. But there's, it's that complementarity of that relationship that is so powerful for children. Yeah. And, you know, I often, my husband and I are very opposite you know, he's very left-brained. I'm very right-brained. And, you know, we just have a lot of jokes in our family about if you want something done fast, ask mom, if you want it done right, ask dad. (laughs) If you want to understand things, ask dad. If you understand, understand people, ask mom, you know, you know, and we have these, these jokes in our family about how sort of that yin and a yang and, and it's, it's beautiful. I mean, sometimes those, those differences, and every relationship can bring frustration and, but I think it brings opportunity for growth because I'd like to see that there's things that I have influenced my husband. And I think that there's definitely ways that he has influenced me. Yes. And in these 34 years we've been married, you know, we've, we've, we've both evolved into just such better people because of those differences.
1: Oh, that's so beautifully said, Linda. And children benefit so much from the differences, even if they don't map perfectly, right? Like on typical things, but just the fact that there are differences, but I love this idea, which is so true. President Irene captured it at the Vatican just so beautifully. He just said, her nurturing grew in me as my, right? His gifts grew in her and you grow into this kind of ever more beautiful completion, a oneness as you learn from one another, grow from one another and and also offer your complementary capacities that in such completing ways.
0: It's it's just beautiful. It is. Well, thank you so much. I could talk to you for hours. Oh, it's been so fun to talk to you. I just just think you are fascinating that the work that you have done is so valuable. And thank you so much for for coming and being a guest on our podcast. And I'm hoping we can have you again and talk about some other issues, because I know that you have so much research and we would love to hear your wisdom again. If you're ever willing to come back, we'd have you anytime.
1: Happy to. Linda, thank you. Thanks for caring and being such a wonderful host and desiring to learn about these issues and share about them. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Raising Family Podcast. This episode was produced by Carol Rice. Our research coordinator is Angela Valentine. Audio was edited and mixed by John Wright. The Raising Family Podcast is brought to you by thefamilyproclamation.org.